Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, it is, yes, I am. I think um, it's it's great to be here. Uh, yeah, very exciting. Um, so obviously, I'm from Walton Baptist Church. Um, my wife uh, and kids are here as well, visiting this morning. So it's great great to be here. Um, Today we're going to speak, uh, I'm going to preach from Matthew 9. Um, I'm actually not sure what page that is on your pew Bibles. If it's in the NIV, it's probably 970 something. Um, from, uh, from Matthew 9, uh, from verse 9 through 17. I should say at the outset that I am deeply indebted to Tim Keller for most of this message. Uh, he really opened my eyes to what uh, Jesus meant in this passage. Uh, so this is the account of how Matthew himself, the writer of this book, uh, came to Christ. Uh, it's a bit surreal. Matthew talks about himself in the third person, but he's setting it out as an objective account, uh, not as a personal letter. Shall we read? As Matthew went on from there, Sorry, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No. They pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So this was the account of Matthew coming to Christ. And the first principle, if you like, that we can take from this is that a Christian is someone who is called. Not someone who's decided to take up religion or Christianity. Jesus comes to Matthew and says, follow me. You don't sense that you've decided to become a Christian. You sense that you're confronted by a person. Ultimately, maybe you might start out seeking, that's true, uh, but it's the call of Jesus to follow him that makes a Christian. In the words of the old hymn, "'Tis not that I did choose thee, for Lord that could not be." This heart would still refuse thee, but thou hast chosen me. Christianity is an adventure. Someone comes to find you. Someone comes to call you. You are called from something to something. You're confronted by a negative and a positive. 
And you don't understand Christianity unless you're willing to confront both. Maybe you're like one of many who might say, I've always believed, I, I, just, I just haven't been very good. I, I haven't been very religious. I'm, I'm not a practicing Christian. As if we were practicing something. <laughs> Some people talk like that. Like, are you a practicing Buddhist? Are you a practicing Jew? A, a practicing Catholic? It's this idea that perhaps, you know, you already know what you should be doing as a Christian. You, you just need to get a bit more serious, really. You know, maybe a bit more praying, a bit more Bible reading, a bit more coming to church. Jesus says, that's not good enough. There has to be a breaking up of your old foundations. There's got to be a revolution in the way that you think about things. Why? Well, because Christianity is, is new wine. When you put new wine in an old wineskin, the old wineskin doesn't have the flexibility to handle it. Have, have you ever handled a, a wineskin? Anyone? Yeah. So, it, like, completely, um, well, it's related to this, but it's a bit random. My dad got a wineskin. So he brought one back from Spain. He was there in the, whatever, 70s or something, and he had a wineskin. It was rock hard. Like, the, the thing is, it just feels rock hard. And the problem is that when you put new wine into a wineskin, now I've not tried this, but this is what I'm told, is that... The wine is, it starts to swell. It needs space. It's organically and chemically active and, and it, it'll just break that old wineskin. It's the same with Christianity. You can't just add Christianity into the old religion. It'll, it'll break that religion. You, you need a new container for it. Listen to how Paul puts this in Philippians 3. From verse 3, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks they have, thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss for this, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ and be found in Him. Paul says he was a religious person, but he, didn't, he doesn't say, well, now I became a Christian, meaning like, you know, I kind of just got things a bit straight. Like I added something, like I, I added Jesus. It was all great and I just added Jesus. Or I got a bit more serious. No, he says, All the things I used to look at and thought they were profitable to me, I now consider to be garbage. Gar garbage is quite a nice translation. Um, I, I, had a, I had a look uh, at what the word is. Um, the word garbage doesn't cause that much offense. 
But this particular word is often used as a reference to human excrement. So you could imagine what the translation should be. What Paul is saying is, you know all of my religiosity, all the things I used to be proud of, everything I accomplished, everything, I consider that all to be beep. That, that was the censored version there. Paul has a complete revolution in the way that he looks at things. So let's get back to Jesus. What is Jesus telling us in this passage? Jesus is saying that you cannot be a Christian unless you're willing to be called away from something. What, what is that thing? I'm going to call that something religion. A, a Christian is somebody who has been called away from religion. You can't be a Christian unless you see the difference between religion and Christianity. Well, you might ask, well, what does all of this mean? I'm, I'm going to try and show you. Um, because what I think here is that Jesus is teaching us here what is the nature of religion. Now, Jesus doesn't use this word, I, I will admit. But I'm going to use it because I think it's probably the easiest way that we can understand what it is that he's trying to say. There's an old way that everybody, whether you think you're religious or not, whether you're an adherent of this religion or that religion, or whether you insist that you have no religion, or whether you think you're liberal or you think you're conservative, everybody except people who have grasped the gospel have an approach to spiritual things called religion. And you cannot be a Christian until you have utterly rejected religion. So what is it? Well, firstly, Jesus gives us some insights into what religion is. Then secondly, Jesus destroys that way of looking at the world. And then lastly, we'll take a look at uh, some ways in which we can judge whether we, whether or not, we ourselves have moved away from religion. So here it is. Here's the definition. Religion is a way of dividing the world into two kinds of people. Religion is a way of justifying yourself. Religion is a way of approaching the power behind life. Let me try and say that again. Religion is a way of dividing the world into two kinds of people justifying yourself so as to approach the power behind life. Jesus and the Pharisees use two words that are very strange. You'll notice that it says, While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When Jesus saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus says, I have nothing to say to the righteous. I have not come to call righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
Now the reason this is curious is because elsewhere in the New Testament, both Paul and Jesus completely reject this way of talking about righteous and sinners. For example, Paul says in Romans 3, There is no one righteous. No, not one And Jesus himself in Mark 10 says, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Don't call any human being good. No one is good but God alone. But if Jesus said that and Paul says that, then then why are they using these terms, righteous and sinners over here? It doesn't doesn't really make that much sense. Unless you accept that Jesus may have chosen to use these words, these terms, because this is how the Pharisees are talking. And he wants to meet them at their level and break the wineskins. Before we see how he does that, let's just briefly talk a bit about religion. So I said earlier, religion is a way of dividing the world into two kinds of people. Good people and bad people. Matthew was a classic example of a bad person. Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collectors were Jews who collected taxes for the Romans, but it wasn't just that they were hated because they were helping the oppressors, but rather because they were also corrupt. They bribed, they extorted to line their own pockets as well. It's classic for us to say, well, you know what? There's little sins, there's big sins. There's good people who do the little sins, and there are bad people who do the big sins. I'm a good person. I only do little sins. Of course, nobody's perfect. To err is human. However, there are the bad people who do the big sins. Everyone does this. Everyone uses religion to divide between the good and the bad, the small sins, the little sins, and the big sins. Some of the common big sins are things like bribery, corruption, crime, sexual irregularities, big sins. So we see that there are bad people, and they're in town, and the good people do the good things uh, that, you know, not too many people think are wrong because you know what they're they, they only do the, the little sins but most of the time they're they're good religion is a lot more pervasive than you may expect though religion is not about having a god or not having a god it's not just the way that normal religions as we would call them traditional formal religions operate it's the way the heart operates Conservatives and liberals do the same. The only difference is how they choose to divide this world. Where is that line between the good people and the bad people? They're all religious. 
The world is quite different to when I was growing up. I remember that in school, smoking was a big sin. <laughs> that was a big no-no. Lying, cheating, swearing, eh, little sins. But smoking, that's a big sin. Back then, sex outside of marriage was a big sin. But sexual harassment, well, that was a little sin. Think back to the early 90s. Think about Bill Clinton's impeachment for sexual infidelity. But back then, as has come out recently through the Me Too movement, etc., um, sexual harassment was actually quite common. Big sins, little sins. But it's fascinating to see how culture is changing. Because it seems to me that sexual harassment has now become a big sin, whereas marital unfaithfulness is no longer even newsworthy and is not even uh, enough to keep someone out of office, whereas previously it used to be. Now, I'm not saying that this is how it should be or how stupid that sounds or anything like that. I'm just trying to point out the difference between big sins and little sins. And the whole point is everyone looks at the world like this. It's just where the line is drawn that's different for some people. Some people say these are the big sins and these are the little sins and I only do these little sins. It's the bad people that do the big ones. You might not even say that you're religious at all, but religion is the pervasive way that people divide up the world. And why? Why, why do people do that? Why would you do it? Well, you would do it because you want to justify yourself to the power behind life. What I mean is that in traditional formal religions, the, the reason that you would do these things, the reason that you would only do the little sins and you stay away from the big sins and you do all these religious things is so that you can say, God owes me. When I pray, God owes me. I've sacrificed. I've made sacrifices. I've said no to lots of things. I've said no all over the place. I believe in traditional values. I've done all these good things. I go to church. I tithe. I fast. I do all these wonderful things and therefore God owes it to me to save me. God owes it to me to hear my prayers. God owes it to me. That is religion. You convince yourself that you are better than other people so that you can say, God owes me. Now there are even some people who don't believe in a God, but they still have the sense that life is not fair. They're not being fairly treated by life. But this is absurd, right? If, if it's all just a matter of matter, time, chance, then what is there to get upset about? Right? But the Bible says that God has put eternity in the heart of man. We know, everyone knows, there is a power behind life. And the way that you defend yourself against that power, the way that you say, life, oh life, you are being unfair to me, is that you divide the world up into good 
and bad. And then you say, I'm good. I only do little sins. Jonah's a great example. He was really upset by the way things were going. That God had relented from destroying Nineveh. And then God comes and says, do you have a right to be angry? And Jonah says, well, of course I have a right to be angry. I'm angry enough to die. What does it mean when things don't go your way and you feel like it's not fair? That just shows how your heart works. You're really better than other people, whether you believe in a God. You're still bringing your sacrifices, which are the things that you've done. Conservatives may think about the traditional values that they're so committed to upholding. The liberal thinks about the fact that they're a tolerant person, open-minded, with a social conscience. I do all these good things. It's not fair what's happening to me. You defend yourself against how your life is going through your good works. By your sense of being superior to other people. God owes me a good life because I've been better than these other people. But Jesus comes and he says something incredibly radical. He says, I have nothing to say to people who live like that. He's using the terminology of these religious people. If sinners means people who do the bad things, who do the big sins, then righteous means people who think they've made it. They are over the line. They're good. God owes them a good life now. And Jesus comes and says, I have nothing to say to you unless you understand Unless you believe that you stand in the very same place morally before God as the murderer, the traitor, the rapist. If you don't get rid of this entire approach of dividing the world and making yourself to be a good person because you only do the good things and not the bad things. if If you don't get rid of this entire approach, you just screen Jesus out. You won't hear anything that he has to say. It just won't make sense to you. So what is he doing there? He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is saying these are the people, the only people that will understand what I have to say. You have to see yourself as a moral failure or or we can't go on. The conservatives... And the liberals, none of them will understand unless we do this. And then he goes on and says, learn what this means. I want you to go away, take some time, think about it, think about it. Don't expect you to understand it immediately. Go away and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And there... Right there, you have everything that you need to break those religious ideas and to start from scratch. He's, of course, quoting from Hosea 6. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Isaiah says something very similar in Isaiah 58, which I'm going to read now, at least parts of it. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? 
Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with, with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry? And to provide the poor wanderer with shelter. And when you see the naked to clothe them. And not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn. And your healing will appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and He will say, Here I am. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. There, you have it, in those five words. What Jesus is saying, first of all, He's saying, Look away from your sacrifices. They're going to mess you up badly. A lot of you might be looking at your sacrifices. And here's a test to make sure whether you know whether or not uh, you were hoping that God, the power behind life, will give you a good life because he owes it to you. Here's how you could figure that out. You're feeling upset. You're always feeling upset. You're feeling grumpy, anxious. Like your life isn't going the way it ought to. Maybe you come to church. Maybe you come to church all the time. Maybe you study your Bible. But there's, there's anger there. God isn't listening to you. God isn't seeing all the good things you're doing for Him. God should know that you're better than others out there. Because of all the good things that you're doing. You're trying. But what does God really want from you? In Micah 6, he says it. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Look at the love he really requires. Look, where it, look at the law. Look where it says, love God with all your heart. Your soul, your strength, and your mind. And look at the law where it says, love your neighbor as yourself. God should be number one in your life. And to love your neighbor is, is just the golden rule. Just treat your neighbor the way you'd like to be treated. Meeting your neighbor's needs the same way that you would meet your own. Does anyone do that? Well, of course not. But Jesus says... Look away from your sacrifices. Look at the mercy. Look at the love that God requires of you. And when you do that, you will be humbled into the dust. It's like a mini version of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't kill. But I say to you, don't even resent someone. 
in your heart. Look, here you are. You're guilty of all these little sins, but you hold a grudge here or there. And here's someone. They've committed the big sins. They've committed murder. That's a big sin. But Jesus says, don't you realize the difference? Just as the entire oak tree was in the acorn and all it needed to grow was just the proper environment, just sunlight, water, and good soil, so too murder is in your heart. And the only difference between you and that other person who actually committed murder is the restraining forces that have kept your acorns on the shelf instead of letting them fall into some nice, cool, damp mud. If you look at your heart instead of your sacrifices, if you look at what God has required of you, it will humble you. It will break you. But then, he's also saying this. If you look away from your sacrifices, on the other hand, look only to mercy, it'll save you. Jesus has come for sinners. And what he's really trying to say is that the only way out from all of your problems here is to look away from your sacrifices and to look to His. Don't look to see what you have done. Look to see what Jesus has done. So, let's close with a test. How do you know that you've really broken through? How do you know that you've broken the old wineskins? Here is the test. The acid test. It's the way you deal with moral failure. Look at Jesus eating. What did it mean back then to eat with someone? It was so much more back then to them than what it means to us now. To sit down and eat meant to have intimate fellowship with somebody, to embrace them, to say, I welcome you into my life. Let's have a relationship. And Jesus eats with sinners. In fact, he says, I only eat with sinners. Now, first of all, are you like Jesus? How do you deal with moral failure? When people come to you and they say, Oh, I've done this really bad thing. I've really failed. I've, I've let myself down. I've let God down. I've let my family down. I've, I've done something. How do you treat them? Are you impatient? Are you indignant? Do you say, pull yourself together? Do they get a sense that you can't really understand how someone could do such a thing? Even if you're not so stupid as to say that. If that's your response, then you're righteous in the same sense that Jesus is describing. If you don't believe that murder and all these other awful things are there in acorn form in your heart, you don't really believe that you're a sinner like everyone else. And because of that, you can't be sympathetic 
and to give and give other people the hope that they need that tells you that there's still a Pharisee right there in your life how do you feel when a sinner comes into church are you a bit concerned that they might pollute the worship here secondly how do you deal with your own moral failures how do you feel when you've let yourself down when you fail are you angry are you devastated do you feel like you can't face God is it because you've now erred into doing the big sins and now you don't deserve God's favor anymore well that's a sign that you're still hanging on to your your sacrifices you're still relying on your old foundations you're still using old wineskins you are your own savior the only distinction that really matters now is between the proud and the humble are you willing to say Jesus I am not worthy you don't owe me a good life you owe me nothing the moment you say that he rushes in to come and eat with you but if you say you owe me a good life look at all the things that I've done I only do small sins the moment you do that that's the moment that he says I haven't come for you that is Christianity and that's the gospel it's that simple it's that profound I have not call, come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance shall we pray Heavenly Father Lord we want to thank you that we could read your word and Lord we pray that you would open our hearts to hear what you are saying Lord that you would help us to look at our hearts and to look at how we approach you Lord do we rely on our own good works and sacrifices or do we count them garbage rubbish and only look to you stand it's uh, good to stand before God and just be silent for a moment you might want to just put your hands out in front of you you might just uh, adopt a posture that enables us to to say with our bodies that we're here because we want to receive from God. We come with empty hands and pray, Come Holy Spirit, speak with us. Come Holy Spirit. I just invite you to shut your eyes and be looking to God and seeing what it is that He has for you.
if God's wanting to say to one or two of us that um, you don't struggle with the we don't struggle with the sense that we're righteous but with the condemnation that we know that we are not and just imagine yourself stand there and picture yourself in the position of one of those who was sitting listening to Jesus and no one else thought that they were worthy of attention and he says no it's for you that I've come My child, it is for you that I have come. Not because you've done anything for me, but because I love you. My child, it is for you that I have come. If you want to pray with someone then I just want to encourage you to grab someone at the end and we'll pray with you we're just going to stand here for a couple of moments and in the silence be looking to God to speak to us